Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we're just, we're just so thankful. We're thankful to have an opportunity to really dive into these words from your apostles to understand uh, your character and what you are asking of us and what you require of us, Lord. Um, sometimes it can be really tough to meet the requirements, but Lord, we want to meet, uh, meet you where you want us at. We would ask that you would please just send your Holy Spirit upon this room, upon my lips and my words, and ask you to just uh, help us to glean out more of a beautiful picture of who you are. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to just dive right in. And honestly, I really like uh, the Bible app. Anybody in here use the Bible app um, as you're going throughout your day? It's really nice in that feature. You're able to jump kind of back and forth in different translations. And honestly, I've been kind of uh, really liking the translation, the Passion Translation. So I chose to use that and put it up on the screen here. The Passion Translation is like a paraphrase. It really, um, I wouldn't... I would definitely bounce back and forth to more of a, uh, a structural scripture like the New King James to really kind of get out what, what God is meaning here. But I think that's a beautiful way that he puts it in this paraphrase. So feel free to please follow along in your Bibles in the pew and just kind of like decipher or maybe you, you can bring up different thoughts in your minds from the New King James compared to the Passion. But we're going to be using the Passion up here on the screen. So a little... Um, Forward. So Paul has been, um, uh, he's been on a journey. He's been on a, uh, his life has been turned upside down and turned around. He's going out trying to figure out what's going on with his new, he was, grew up in a, uh, in a Jewish setting. He was in his, uh, top of his class. He was a really, really good scholar and he was all in. So, um, <clears throat> Here in verse 1, in chapter 1, from Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, my apostleship was not granted to me by men, for I was appointed by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So, interesting enough, uh, Paul is claiming apostleship. He's claiming to be part of the 12 here. And he's not saying that this has come from my own, his own understanding. This is from the unveiling, as we'll later understand. Jesus Christ revealed himself to to Paul. Not just one occasion, Paul is claiming on multiple occasions to, uh, to really understand, to rewire Paul's brain to understand who the Messiah was in the Old Testament and who he is now as our Savior in grace. Verse 2, all the brothers and sisters join with me as I write the letter to the churches throughout the region of central Turkey. May God's understanding, uh, no, God's undeserved kindness and total well-being that flow from our Father and from the Lord Jesus be yours. He's saying there's, there's some trouble in Galatia. There's controversy going on. There is a misunderstanding. And he's saying Jesus' salvation is yours. It's yours already. Even though there might be some un, un, uh, uh, something that he needs to draw out from them, that they're misunderstanding, misrepresenting, um, he is still saying that his salvation is yours, which is, I think is very amazing. He's the anointed one who, suffer, who offered himself to the, as a sacrifice for our sins. He has rescued us from this evil world system and set us free. Amen. Jesus, as our Father God desired. He is breaking us away from this whole system that we're used to understanding in this world. <clears throat> so chapter 5, may all the glory be to God alone. Throughout time and eternity, amen. So um, 
more just reaffirming that this is God and God alone and his work that he is doing through Paul, through the Galatians, and he is doing it within his own time. So verse 6, I am shocked. You know, Paul has been, um, he's been there. He's been through the trenches with these folks. He really went through and um, uh, got down on their level and spent time with them. And, and the, the amount of effort that takes, especially with a Gentile nation, um, to revert them back to looking at the uh, Jewish Messiah. And he's taken the time, he's baptized with them, he's ate with them, he's been with them. And he's just, right here as we understand, I am shocked over how quickly you have strayed from the one who has called you into the grace of Christ. He saw something happen there, something amazing. And he's just amazed that they're so ready to flip it around and uh, learn something different. I'm astounded that you now... Do, embrace a distorted gospel. This is a fake gospel that is simply not true. There is only one gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Yet if you allowed let yet you have allowed those who mingle law with grace to confuse you. So people are coming in and and making exactions, making things that they have to do, they have to accomplish to receive the grace of Christ or receive um, receive into this community, this this covenant community. So be but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach you a gospel different than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. So anybody that comes to, to change your understanding of the free gift of God, the free gift of his grace of what Jesus did on the cross, even angels, even some of his, he's saying we, even somebody from us, if they're changing that and putting a focus on something different, let them be a curse to you. So please let me know if I'm going too fast. We're going to try to jump through the, all of this really quick, and I'll do a lot of reading, but um, uh, it's hopefully we could track together with this. But he wants to make something clear. So Paul, let me make it clear. Anyone, no matter who they are, that brings a different gospel than the gospel that he received, let them be condemned in He's repeating himself. He's continuing to say, this is, this is something I'm trying to draw out of the, the letter I'm you know, writing out to you. I'm obviously not trying to flatter you or water down my message to be popular with men. But my supreme passion is to please God, for it is all I attempt to do and is please people. I would fail to be a true servant of Christ. So there must be words going around in Galatians that he's trying to make this, a, just, just make the gospel in some sort of way where everybody likes it. Where it's just, it, it's, it's appealing to the people's uh, uh, well, how would you say it, like um, appealing to the people's wants and desires and their freedom um, instead of actually what he's trying to do. He's not trying to be uh, sympathetic to people. He's trying to just understand the truth as it is. And will, as we get in more of this introduction, it's going to really take an understanding of like how he went through this conversion experience. Beloved ones, let me repeat empathetically, the gospel entrusted to me was not given to me by man. No one taught me this revelation, for it was given to me directly by the unveiling of Jesus Christ. By now you have heard the stories of how severely I harassed and persecuted Christians and how systematically I endeavored to destroy God's church, all because of my radical devotion to the Jewish religion. So Paul is um, trying to get people to understand, like, hey, I was one of you. I was one of them. I was one of the people that are asking you now to do things to require God, to get God's grace. I was, I was in it. I was one of those folks. I was 
trying to undo what the Messiah has done, what Jesus has came to have done. I went and persecuted him. I sought them out. I was, I was them. I was them. And I'm trying to get you to understand now how I got from there over to where God's grace is the main focus of his attention. So 15, but then God called me by his grace and chose me from my birth to be his. Isn't that amazing? God has chose us from our birth. He chose Paul from his birth, even though God realized that Paul is going to go through some pretty amazing uh, uh, transformation from one side of thinking to what the Messiah wants him to think like. So 16, he was pleased to unveil his son in me that so, so that I would proclaim, to, proclaim him to the peoples of the world. After I had this encounter, I kept it a secret for some time, sharing it with no one, and I had no desire to run to Jerusalem and try to impress those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I withdrew, withdrew into the Arabian desert, and I returned to Damascus where I had first encounter with Jesus. So we all know Paul's story. He was on the way to Damascus. He was on the way to seek out these Christian followers. And he got met on the road to Damascus and was blinded, blinded by the presence of Jesus, blinded by his love and character that really um, caused him to go into a state of unknowing, unseeing. And um, that really was his first uh, uh, viewing of Jesus and kind of it was interesting that he's keep, he kept it a secret for some time. And he withdrew himself. Like Paul's whole world was churned upside down. I mean, he was like, I imagine, like, I put myself in his shoes. Like, my whole world has been churned into following Jesus. And this is, uh, I would think that I'm doing it in a correct way, but everything I do in my life is all about the ministry to, to be here to help people. And that's what kind of what Paul was doing in a, in a negative context. He was all about Jewish religion, Jewish regulations, about, um, all about the Torah keeping. And he was going to a point to persecute people that weren't doing that. He was immersed. He was in it. That was everything he did. And Jesus took him and just flipped that whole world upside down. So uh, he really needed to dive deep into, like, understanding what is going on here. What happened back then and what's happening now? So we withdrew it to the Arabian Desert. He spent time, tons of time, not, uh, uh, reviewing the Word, understanding and seeing God, you know, through the lens of Jesus in the, in, throughout the Torah and the Old Testament. And I had no desire to run to Jerusalem and try to impress those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I withdrew into the river of the desert. Then I returned into Masses where I first encountered Jesus. Let's be that. It, <clears throat> I remained there for three years until I eventually went up to Jerusalem, met the apostle Peter, and stayed with him for a couple of weeks. So he took three years to go before he went out to meet the other apostles. The only other apostle I met during that time was Jacob, the Lord's brother. Even, everything I'm describing to you, I confess before God to be the absolute truth. After my stay in Jerusalem, I went to Syria in southwest Turkey, but I remained unknown to the churches in Judea. So he's still, uh, he's still stepping back. He's still kind of withdrawing himself to really make sure that his understanding is correct. The only thing that I heard about me was our former enemy who who once brutally persecuted is now preaching the good news of the faith that he tried to destroy. Because of the transformation that took place in my life, they praise God even more. 
So it's amazing that the, they are all recognizing, even though they're not recognizing him physically probably at this moment, they're recognizing what God has done in his life. How God has taken somebody that they all knew about, they were probably very terrified about, um, <laughs> and he, he took that and transformed him to be a minister of his gospel. So chapter 2, 14, year later, I ret- 14 years later, I returned to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, Titus, my co- co-workers. So 14 years he spent trying to understand what is going on. He had this, he was so entrenched in his ways and his understanding that it took him so many years later to really understand what is going on here. What has Jesus has done? What was happening back then? And what is God doing now? God gave me a clear revelation to go and confer with the other apostles concerning the message of grace. I was preaching to the Gentiles. I spoke privately with them who are viewed as senior leaders of the church, wanting to make it certain that my labor in the ministry for the Messiah had not been based on false understanding of the gospel. So here he took the time to review, understand. He looked through the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus the Messiah, and he wants to Make sure that we're, he, what he's understanding through this is the truth of the gospel before he continues to take it out to the world. Even though Titus was a Syrian or Greek, they accepted him as a brother without denying, demanding that he first be circumcised. So this is kind of the first uh, inclination of what's going on in Galatia. They're asking them to, to keep a Jewish regulation of circumcision. And he's pointing out that even... Titus, as a first uh, believer, one of the uh, first few Gentile believers that are coming on the scene here, he wasn't compelled. He wasn't compelled to be circumcised, and they didn't require it from him. But they counted him one of his brothers. I met with him privately because, uh, because false brothers had been secretly smuggled into the church meetings. They were sent to spy on the wonderful freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Their agenda was to bring us back into the bondage of religion. So the Old Testament, the Torah, the bondage of religion was more like a stumbling block to people. It was hard for these Gentiles to adhere to all these things. Um, and it came, came a thing that they were just like, I'm not going to accept this. I'm not going to do this. But it's, um, <clears throat> it's interesting how people are coming in here secretly and, and seeking these things out. Um, I think it's just, I don't know, I, my mind wanders and stuff, and it goes, and I'm like, man, this is some pretty invasive spying, and um, well, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> but verse 5, but you must know that we did not submit to their religious shackles, not even for a moment, so that we might keep the truth of the gospel of grace unadulterated to, for you. Even those most influential among the brothers were not able to add anything to my message. Who they are before men makes no difference to me, for God is not impressed by the reputations. I think it's very interesting as they're conversing about this and they're getting into these uh, arguments and debates. Paul's like, you're not adding nothing. You're, you aren't adding anything to what, the way I understand the Messiah and who him to be. And it doesn't mean anything to me. Just because you're higher up in the church or you're a position of power um, without the word and the truth of the gospel, it's it just very, very meaningless. It doesn't have any merit. <clears throat> so they recognized that I was entrusted with taking the gospel, gospel to the Gentiles just as Peter was entrusted with it taking it to the Jews. 
For the same God who empowered Peter's apostolic ministry to the Jews also flowed to me as an apostle to the Gentiles. So there's this uh, understanding going on here where um, Peter's really good at taking things to the Jews. Peter's, Paul's going to take this to the Gentiles. When they all recognize this grace operating in my ministry, those who were recognized as individual influential pillars in the church, Jacob, Peter, and John, extended to Barnabas and me, warmth of Christian fellowship, and honored my calling to minister to the Gentiles, even as they were going to the Jews. So they're extending the hand of fellowship. They're, they're uh, uh, anointing them to go out and, and, and preach this message. They simply requested one thing of me, that I would remember the poor and the needy which was the burden I was already carrying in my heart. So it's amazing that these church leaders, yeah, they're having controversy. Yeah, they're debating about different things. And, um, but they're all wanting to remember the poor and the needy. They want to meet people's needs where they're at. And they're like, don't forget that. But we're going to get into now a controversy where... Um, where Peter might have slipped on that. He might not understand that. He might not uh, understand what he was doing. But it was obvious to Paul that he wasn't meeting their needs. He was not just in a physical sense, but in an emotional sense too. So verse 11, when, and, and this word probably got through. I mean, it's interesting that Paul is um, bringing this up to the Galatians. But I'm sure as word gets around to the churches, this incident was brought up to the Galatians. And it really kind of added to... Um, what he wanted them to understand. So verse 12, he enjoyed eat, or verse 11. When Peter visited Antioch, he caused the believers to stumble over his behavior. For I was confronted with, so I confronted him to his face. This is very interesting. So they're in Antioch, they're eating, they're fellowshipping together. And um, Paul wants to bring something out right in front of everybody. This is a very tense situation. This is I just like to put myself in that room to see like how this all went down and um, what his tone was like and what the, what the vibe was like in the room, you know. He enjoyed eat Paul, or Peter, he enjoyed eating with the Gentile believers who didn't keep the, Jew, didn't keep the Jewish customs up until the time Jacob's Jewish friends arrived from Jerusalem. When he saw them, he withdrew from his Gentile friends, fearing how it would look to them if he ate with Gentile believers. So he's, he's in there. He's working with the Gentiles. He's doing what Paul has already been doing and, and fellowshipping with them and, and meeting their needs. And, and as soon as these people, these leaders that Peter must have regarded as uh, either close friends or, or somebody that's well-recognized in the church, and he's separated. He made a divide, and him being a leader also helped people, people want to follow kind of that, that lead that he was putting out. So And so, because of Peter's hypocrisy, many other Jewish believers followed suit, refusing to eat with Gentile believers. And you could feel Paul's just hurt as this next statement, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocritical behavior. Excuse me. <laughs> but I mean, he's even saying, my friend, my friend in the word, the, the friend that we went out together to these things, even he was led astray. So he starts to confront Peter now in front of everyone. So when I realized they were asking inconsistently with the revelation of the gospel, I confronted people, Peter, in front of everywhere, in front of everyone. So I, I, I want to just bring something out, too, that was really interesting. He's saying he was acting inconsistently, inconsistently with the revelation of the gospel. 
I think it's really cool that the part of the gospel message is, is to, to sit down and eat with people, to fellowship, to make friends, to mingle, and, um, and to, to see that he was making that separation and drawing himself away. It's interesting how Paul is like, that's not the gospel. The gospel is, is, is getting down, getting, in, getting down with people. Um, so he starts uh, kind of make his accusation to Peter now. You were born a Jew, but you've chosen to disregard Jewish regulations and live like a Gentile. Why then do you force Gentiles to conform or compel Gentiles to conform to these same rules? <clears throat> Although we're Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, so Paul is really bringing out the prejudice within, his own, within Peter's own heart, within the Jewish people's heart. He's not calling them like, bad sin or evil people. He's just playing out kind of like Jesus did when he throw, uh, she was talking to a woman that, um, you know, do you throw pearls in front of swine? He, he was in that kind of context. He was playing out the prejudice of the time to kind of show how egregious it is. You know, if you don't want to dine with these sinners. When we pick up in verse 16, we know that no one receives God's perfect righteousness as a reward for keeping the law, but only by the faith of Jesus, the Messiah. His faithfulness has saved us, and we have received God's perfect righteousness. Now we know that God accepts no one by keeping of religious laws. It's his faith. I think that's really interesting. Faith, the faith of Jesus. It's got nothing to do with what we do. It's God's faith in us, or faith in, um, in the Messiah, his son, that came and made this sacrifice for us. It is his work in our lives that transforms us to become better, to do better. It's not our works trying to uh, work out this merit by what we do and do good things. It's not going to bring us to a better favor of God. God already favors us. We're already in. We just accept it through his faith. Amen? Although we're Jews by, or hold on, 16, 17, if we are those who desire to be righteous through our own our union with the anointed one, what does that mean? Our Messiah condones sin, even though we acknowledge that we are sinners? How absurd. So he's saying, like, you know, sin isn't something that he wants us to just do. He doesn't want us to go out and be, uh, uh, be sinners or, or treat people unequally or separate um, people and not make them part of God's covenant kingdom. He says, no, the, the very action of my faith in you should bring out Joy, love, peace, kindness, all these things that Paul's going to get into at the end of chapter 5. For, I start, for if I start over and reconstruct the old religious system that I had torn down with the message of grace, I would appear to be a lawbreaker. For though the law, but through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. So it's God that came around and kept this covenant as his son, Jesus. And um, he kept the covenant because we were unable to keep it. We were unable to uh, meet all these regulations, all these requirements. We kept failing and failing again. And Jesus sent his son to be the faith to keep these things for us so we may be saved through him. Verse 20, my old identity has been co-crucified with Christ and no longer lives. And now the evidence of this new life is no longer mine. For the anointed one lives his life through me. We live in union as one. My new life is empowered by the faith of the, of the Son of God who loves me so much that he gave himself for me 
dispensing me, dispensing his life into mine. He made the ultimate sacrifice. God did all the work. God is the one we lean on for our salvation. And all the other things will come as we lean on him, as he transforms our life, as he takes us like Paul did and just reverted his whole thinking. Uh, Verse 21, so that, that is why I don't view God's grace as something peripheral. For if keeping the law could release God's righteousness to us, then Christ would have died for nothing. So I think it's really interesting, this line. It definitely says something different in um, the New King James, but we don't keep God's grace as something peripheral, something that's like outside of our vision. Like Paul is like, no, this is our main focus. This is the main focus. All the other things are peripheral. All the other things should be in your realm of thinking, but your main focus on what Christ has done. He did all the work for us. He kept the covenants. He is the Savior. He's the one that did it all, and he's just asking us to have faith and understand that his faith in us is going to make the transforming happen in our lives. So chapter 3, what has happened to you, foolish Galatians? Who has put you under an evil spell? Did God not open your eyes and to see the meaning of Jesus' crucifixion? Was he not revealed to you as the crucified one? So they had an experience. Wasn't your eyes open to all this? Didn't you see all this? And now you're turning back to these old ways, being influenced by other people other than me. So answer me this. Did the Holy Spirit come to you as a reward by keeping Jewish laws? No. You received him as a gift because you believed in the Messiah. So it's just kind of going back to what I said. It is a storing up merit. You know, it's trying to do things and, and, and keep certain uh, traditions and stuff like that. That is not uh, adding to the God's grace. That is not bringing you more uh, blessings. God's already ready to bless you. He's ready to give you his grace. He's ready to give you into the covenant community and work on you from there forward. Your new life began when the Holy Spirit gave you a new birth. Why then would you so foolishly turn from the living from the living in the spirit by trying to finish by your own works. You know, he's just kind of ex- ex- extrapolating this out where it's like your own works. This is your own doing. Keeping, keeping all these regulations, keeping Torah is part of, of, of yourself. You know, doing things yourself instead of relying on God's faithfulness. You have endured so many trials and pu- have you endured so many trials and persecutions for nothing? Let me ask you again. What does the lavish supply of the Holy Spirit in your life and the miracles of God's tremendous power have to do with keeping religious laws? The Holy Spirit is poured out upon us through the revelation and power of faith, of his faith. You know, uh, uh, just kind of, I know I'm reading myself, but you know, the, the more and more we do, um, <clears throat> you know, I like to really use the word Torah for law too. I think it's a really good way to kind of like explain like all the, the whole law that was given to uh, uh, Moses in the Old Testament for the people to guide them through uh, the world they are living. But um, I think Paul will let her like, extrapolate, too, that you know, the law was good. If there was a law that we could be kept that would have saved us, this would have been it. But we weren't able to do it. We are unable to keep it. And, and when we focus on God's faith in us... That's when he could really kind of start to work through the different aspects, and we'll be, we'll be keeping it without even knowing. <clears throat> so now he gets into Abraham, an example. Abraham, our, 
our father of faith believed God, and the substance of his faith released of his faith <clears throat> released God's righteousness to him. So the two children of Abraham have the same faith as their father. And the scripture prophesies that on the basis of faith, God would declare Gentiles to be righteous. God announced the good news ahead of time to Abraham. Through your example of faith, all nations will be blessed. And so the blessing of Abraham's faith is now our blessing too. But if you rely on works of keeping of the law for salvation, you live under the law's curse. For it is written, utterly cursed is everyone who fails to practice every detail, detail and requirement the, that is written in the law. So if we're living by, uh, if we're, <clears throat> like I, I like where it says in verse 10, but if you rely on the works of keeping the law for salvation. So the law wasn't for salvation, it's for a, a, a reflection to be able to understand what sin is, what what is walking away from Jesus? It wasn't part of our salvation. Jesus was always the promise, the faithful one that's going to come through the seed of Abraham. That's going to, that's going to keep that promise for us um, and be our salvation. And all the other things are going to be a peripheral understanding. 11. So it is obvious that no one achieves the righteousness of God by attempting to keep the law. For it is written, the one who is in the right relationship with God will live by faith. By faith, what God can do in our lives. But keeping the law does not require faith, but self-effort. For the law teaches if you practice the principles of the law, you must follow all of them. So more of these doing things and, and, and to require God's favor to put us into right standing with God. Yes, yet Christ paid the full price to set us free from the curse of the law. How absurd, how absorbed the curse completely as he... Be- He absorbed the curse completely as he became a curse in our place. For it is written, everyone who is hung upon the tree is cursed. So so Christ is the one that is paying the punishment of the law. So there there is a punishment for breaking the law. There is a a separation that does take place. And and God experienced that separation in Jesus Christ. He experienced that for us so we don't have to do that. So we can live in faith of what he did to continue to change our lives, to, fit, to flip our perspective, to, to get us out of this worldly thinking. Beloved friends, let me illustrate, use an illustration that we can all understand. Technically, when a contract is signed, it cannot be changed after it has been put into effect. It's too late to alter the agreement. Remember the royal proclamation. God spoke over Abraham, Abraham's child. God said to his promise to... God said that his promises were made to pass on Abraham's child, not children. And who is that child? It's, it's the son of promise, Christ himself. So God was going to do something amazing through Abraham, through all the circumstances that Abraham was dealing with. He were, him and Sarah were not able to bear children. They were of an old age. And God's like, I'm going to do this through you. I'm going to do this through you. Like, trust in me. And, and, and as we're going to pull out here, they, at first they didn't trust in him. At first, they, uh, Sarah used some of her own devices or own ways to go through and try to get a son of heir to, uh, <clears throat> to Abraham in their own works, in their own way. This means that the covenant between God and Abraham was fulfilled in Messiah and cannot be altered. Yet the written law was not given until Moses until 430 years after God had signed his contract with Abraham. The law then does not supersede the promise since the royal proclamation was given before the law. 
If that were the case, it would have annulled what God said to Abraham. We receive all the promises because of the promised one, not because we keep the law. Like, like, keep going back. This is not about our works. It's not about what we do. It's what God has already done. God has already done this and um, proclaimed faith in Abraham and said his seed is going to come through and bless all nations. Why then was the law given at all? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the seed. The child who was promised when God gave the law, he gave it first to the angels they gave it to, to Moses and his mediator and then gave it to the people. So the law was designed to show people their sins, to get understanding of what sin is, what is falling away from God, not to be a, um, not to be a saving grace for them. They, I think Jesus and God understood that this was going to be a problem, it's going to be a stumbling block that people have made it into be. But um, God kind of circumvented around that because the law is good, the law is right. But it's not going to produce in us any goodness. It's only Jesus Christ and what he done, has done that's going to produce good in us. Why then was the, or um, verse 20, now a meteor does not represent just one party alone, but God fulfilled it all by himself. Since this, that's true, <clears throat> should we consider the written law to be contrary to the promise of new life? How absurd. Truly, if there was a law that could keep we could keep, which would give us new life, then our salvation would come by law-keeping. If, this, if there was a law to give us new life, that would have been it. But the, God let us have an opportunity to try it and try it and try it again, and we continue to fail not only in faith but in keeping of the Torah. <clears throat> but the Scriptures make it clear that the whole world is imprisoned by sin. This was so the promise could be given through the faith to people who believe in Jesus Christ. So the whole world is condemned. The whole world, we have all fallen astray, and we all need to lean on Jesus and what he done on the, has done for us on the cross. So until the revelation of faith for salvation was released, the law was a jailer, holding us as prisoners under lock and key until the faith, which was designed to be revealed, would set us free. The law was our guardian until Christ came so that we would be saved by faith, so the law was to guard us, to to guide us through the world, through um, all these things that were happening around there. It was trying to keep them in to a um, into some sort of goodness, but they continued to fail and fail and fail again until Jesus had to come and keep it for Himself. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian of the law. You have all become true children of a God by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith immersed you into Christ, and now you are covered and clothed with his life. And we no longer see each other in our former state, Jew or non-Jew, rich or poor, male or female, because we are all one through our union with Jesus Christ. Amen? I mean, we don't see each other as different. You know, even though there could be some things that Peter had to work on in Antioch, the apostles did when they were with Jesus, Jesus saw them all, all as saved, as, as you're part of the covenant kingdom. And uh, I think it's something that I need to work on in my life, is just to see everybody uh, not in a different light, but all as children of God, all already uh, ready to accept the gift of salvation. And if you belong to Christ and you are now Abraham's child and a true heir of all his blessings because of the promise God made to Abraham. 
So I, I was wondering if I could fit this all into one sermon. I think we're kind of like uh, running on, but I'm going to skip ahead to verse or chapter 5. There's a lot of really good things in chapter 4, too, that he's continued to make illustrations about what is happening here. But now, in Christ, at last we have freedom, for Christ has set us free. We must always cherish this truth and firmly refuse to go back in the bondage of our past. I, Paul, tell you, if you think there is a benefit in circumcision and Jewish regulations, then you're acting as though Christ is not enough. I say it again empathetically. If you let yourselves be circumcised, you are obligated to fill every single one of the commandments and regulations of the law. If you want to be made right with God by fulfilling the obligations of the law, you have cut off more than the flesh. You have cut yourselves off from Christ and have fallen away from the revelation of grace. So if we're relying on our own works, we're kind of cutting off the what God has done Um, On the cross, what he came to do, what came to take away our sins, if we're relying on what we do, it's really cutting off that that personal relationship that Jesus wants to have to really flip our thinking around to to love like he loved. But we have a true hope that comes from being made right with God, and by the Spirit we wait eagerly for this hope. So when you, it's verse 6, when you are joined to the anointed one, circumcision and religious obligations can benefit you nothing. All that matters now is living in faith that works and expresses itself through love. But if you were led astray, you were so, before you were led astray, you were so faithful. You have deceived you so that you have turned from what is right. The one who unfolded you into the grace is not behind this false teaching that you have embraced. Don't you know that when you are allowed even a little lie in your heart, it can permeate your entire belief system? So when you let something like this that's causing separation, that's causing a division within the covenant community, it's really going to permeate throughout your whole life. And um, deep in my heart, I have confidence that the Lord who lives in you will bring you back around to the truth. I'm convinced that those who trouble you, whoever they think they are, will bear the penalty. So they will, they will have what they got coming to them. Don't worry about that. What you need to be focusing on is Jesus' faith and righteousness. So I'm going to skip down to verse 14. For all the law can be summarized in one grand statement. Demonstrate love to your neighbor even as you care and love yourself. So I think it's a really an interesting paraphrase that, that uses to, uh, to really understand what it could all be summarized as. You know, obviously, uh, Paul isn't kind of going after the moral law here because um, he is really expecting morality to come out of a faith, the faith in Christ. <clears throat> but if you continue to criticize and come against each other over these minor issues, you're acting like wild beasts trying to destroy one another. So our main focus is on Jesus. Everything is in the per- peripheral. Main focus is on God's grace, what he's done for us. <clears throat> When yourself, verse 17, when your self-life craves the things that offend the Holy Spirit, you hinder him from living free within you. And the Holy Spirit's intense cravings hinder your self-life from dominating, dominating you. So then the two incompatible and conflicting forces that are with, that within you are your self-life of the flesh and the new creation of the Spirit. But when you yield to the life of the Spirit, you'll no longer be living under law but you'll be soaring above it. So when you live your life in faith in Jesus and he's able to work through you, 
He's going to take you far above it. You'll be, without even noticing, you'll be keeping probably a lot of these laws that he's talking about. Instead of doing it by trying to accept favor, let's just have faith in God that he's going to work in our lives to change us all, <clears throat> all around. He gets into some interesting stuff. So the behavior of the self-life is obvious. Sexual immorality, lustful thoughts, pornography, chasing after things instead of God, manipulating others, hatred of those who get in your way, senseless arguments, <clears throat> resentment when others are favored, temper tantrums, angry quarrels, only thinking of yourself, being in love with your own opinions, being envious of the blessings of others, murder, uncontrolled addictions, wild parties, and, other, and all other similar behavior. Haven't already warned you that those who use their freedom for these things will not inherit the kingdom and realm of God. So these things are not really freedom. This is not like you're free to go out and commit all these bad atrocities and things. That's actually going to put you into bondage. That's actually going to uh, set you back a whole bunch. And the freedom of loving and living through God's love is what gets us free, makes us happy. And he goes into the fruit of the Spirit now. But the fruit produced by the Holy Spirit within you is divine love in all its various expressions. Joy that overflows, peace that subdues, patience that endures, kindness in action, a life full of virtue, faith that prevails, gentleness of heart, and strength of spirit. Never set the law above these qualities, for they are meant to be limitless. <clears throat> I think it's just really amazing the, the things, the attributes that Paul is bringing out that should come out of a faith in Jesus. When Jesus comes into our lives and he changes us just like he did Paul, he took him from an area where it was really bad, he was persecuting Jesus, and turned his whole world upside down and had a, a really a new understanding about what, who God is, how his character is, and uh, how he wants us to be in that freedom, freedom to continue to love through Christ. It's really amazing to... Uh, to be in that. And, and there's a lot of examples that are around here that um, have, have really shown me what God's character is like, you know, for uh, uh, a, lot of, a lot of you guys have come into my lives and it's just amazing that um, some of you will just get down in the dirt with me and, and help me put into transmission, you know, will recognize my old rickety blue truck and offer me another truck. I mean, this is, this is stuff that's just, it's unexplainable. Only to explain by God that you're focusing on the faith of Jesus to really, to really get down and love people and be there for people. And he goes into chapter 6. I would implore you to, this afternoon to just pour back over the word of Galatians. And in chapter 6 he says, come with people that have led astray, come in the spirit of gentleness to restore them in a gentle manner to a right relationship with God. Giving them to understand that, um, let's go ahead and, I think, <clears throat> so my beloved friends, if you see a believer who is overtaken with a fault, the one who is in the spirit should seek to restore him in the spirit of gentleness. But keep watch over your own heart so that you won't be tempted to exalt yourself over them. So I like, I really like the way he paraphrased that. And, and, and it's a little bit different than the King James Version. But I think it's interesting that... The thing he's pointing out here is not to exalt yourself over somebody that's fallen astray. Not to make them feel like, hey, you know, I'm better than you. 
but here I'll try to get you back. No, to, to understand that, no, we're all in the same condition here. We all need a Savior. We all need the faith of Jesus, just like anybody else, no matter what walk, point of their walk they are in their lives. So I implore you this week, I'm, thank you for bearing with me. I know it's a lot of words, a lot of scripture, but we kind of got through it, and I'm getting better at this. So thank you very much for bearing with me. And please go out this week and just find, uh, find a way to stoop down to somebody's level and love them like Jesus loves us. So thank you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so blessed and so thankful to uh, kind of unpack these truths. I know it was a lot in one segment, Lord, but just help to inspire each and every one of us, and myself included, to, to continue to pour through Galatians, continue to understand what Paul's points he's trying to make, Lord, and just change our lives around. Lord, just make us like Paul. Make us take our, our, our worldly thinking and our, our attributes that might be contrary to yours and flip them upside down and help us to... Love people like you love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.